0: There is no military solution in Libya. The only solution has to be a political solution. And with all the difficulties in taking the LPA, the Libyan political agreement, the Skhirat agreement, and implementing it, and nevertheless, it's the only tool that we've got. It's the only option that we've got.
1: Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Ben Pauker, FP's executive editor for The Web, and you're listening to The ER. I'm in Brussels today, and I'm joined by Ambassador Mohamed Shahab. Jost Tilterman and Colin Kahl. Mohammed Abu shahab is the ambassador of the United Arab Emirates to Belgium and the EU. He was previously director of policy planning at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and International Cooperation of the UAE. Jost Tilterman is the Middle East and North Africa program director at the International Crisis Group, leading the organization's research, analysis, policy prescription and advocacy in and about the region. And Colin Call is an associate professor in the security studies program at Georgetown's Walsh School of Foreign Service. He is also a strategic consultant for the Penn-Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement. In January 2018, he will join the faculty at Stanford University as the inaugural Stephen C. Hazy Senior Fellow in the Freeman Spoley Institute Center for International Security and Cooperation. ER nerds, we love hearing from you. If you've got an episode, ideas, or comments, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. Welcome listeners, we have a special edition of the ER today. We're not actually in our tiny podcast studio high above DuPont Circle, but on the 25th floor of a hotel in Brussels. Uh, where I have the privilege to be joined by these three uh, discussing, in the heart of the European capital, discussing some issues of great importance uh, to the global community. We just finished up a peace game, which is a a special event that uh, FP does. This was our eighth one discussing Libya. And so I thought we would have a little bit of a discussion about that and some of the regional complexities. And then, because it's going to be in the news, I'd like to turn and we'll have a, a little talk about what we foresee as some of the complexities regarding the Iran deal uh, with what seems to be Trump's uh, imminent decision to decertify the deal. But because we're in Brussels, not Washington. I think this is a unique opportunity to talk more broadly about some of the issues regarding Libya and some of the issues regarding both of these regional crises. Um, too often, I think, even at foreign policy, we present the sort of the U.S. context or the what the Trump administration will do, what the State Department thinks of X, Y, or Z. It's a unique opportunity for us to go a bit broader and think a little bit about how other governments in Europe is approaching this. So, Mohammed, I'd like to begin with you. Can you give us a little bit of an appreciation for the current climate in Libya right now? Too often in the U.S., it's only thought of as a security crisis, uh, an imminent home for ISIS and terrorism. But the political issues are much broader.
0: Thank you, Ben. I think, you know, first off, perhaps I should talk about why we should care about Libya and why does the UAE care about Libya? Libya is a very, can be a very wealthy country with lots of natural resources. It's a large uh, country that can, if left to uh, spiral further out of control, can have huge impact, spillover, negative effects on many of its neighbors. And it already uh, is having some effects, not just to its neighbors on the south, but also its uh, neighbors uh, up north in, in Europe. It is a country that has for, uh, whose people for far too long haven't uh, enjoyed stability and prosperous uh, development and good governance. Uh, And after the fall of the Gaddafi uh, regime uh, has been open to being hijacked by extremist groups. And uh, for the UAE, uh, we see that um, uh, too many examples of, Uh, regional instability in our region, festering and then creating space for further problems. So, you know, we should all care about Libya, care about getting it towards a political solution um, so that these problems, whether it's uh, migration, uh, extremism, or you know, social economic problems of the for the Libyan people, so that we can uh, help uh, or play our part in, in in resolving it. And if we want to stay away from uh, this, or 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 just to manage uh, the problem, uh, it's just a matter of time, as we see from terrorist attacks, from uh, other uh, events. Uh, it's just a matter of time before we will have to be pulled in. So, you know, we uh, are glad that we were able to have this uh, discussion here in, in, in Brussels. Joost,
1: Mohammed mentioned the migration and security issues, but maybe you can give our listeners a quick lay of the land with regard to the political talks, the peace process, and the different actors. Uh, thanks, uh, Ben. Let me let me start this way: uh, to the Libyans, from the Libyans, from the from the
2: ground up, their country is a disaster, but they still consider it their country. There is still a Libyan identity that's very important. We have seen huge migrant flows through Libya, but we haven't seen many Libyan refugees, actually, until now, fortunately, which suggests that there is still a basis for coming to some kind of uh, solution. But the the problem of the Libyans, and they are deeply divided, especially after the, um, uh, the lid was taken off Uh, Libya through the removal of the regime in 2011 um, uh, and and the the weakness of political institutions under the previous regime, uh, under Gaddafi. Now, uh, people are uh, basically uh, competing for resources um, and they're using uh, everything at their disposal. Uh, Political leaders use use militias and it's everyone against everyone. And to find a solution in this is, is extremely difficult. From the regional perspective, as the ambassador says, it's also very frightening because there are a number of conflicts in the region and they are multiplying. And these countries that are that have, until now, are outside of the crisis are trying to protect themselves, but are actually also contributing to the crisis. And then you get the Europe, especially in the case of Libya, to the lesser extent the United States, which are looking from outside and are also affected by the crisis because of the migrants and the terrorism threat and are overreacting in many cases, or pursuing an overly securitized uh, response that doesn't address the real problems that are going on in Libya. In this context, the UN has been asked to come and facilitate a uh, a political solution that is uh, Libyan-led. And this has proven to be very difficult. But two years ago, um, an agreement was reached among some of the actors. It sounded inclusive, but it was actually not inclusive of some of the key power brokers. Uh, and they have become spoilers since then. Uh, so, for the last two years, we've seen that this uh, this uh, agreement, the Libyan political agreement, um, has faltered. Um, but, it, but again, because there is this, still this Libyan identity, and because there is no single actor that can prevail over others militarily, um, it hasn't gone away. And now uh, we have a, a renewed, a reinvigorated attempt by the UN uh, to uh, to address this and to see if this can be fixed, if this agreement can be fixed. Um, and especially if uh, some of the, the, the main actors that were supporters two years ago and in the past two years can still be brought together. And that, that's the real challenge we face. But if we don't do it, then uh, the migrant flow will continue because uh, it's privatized and militias are just basically becoming people smugglers. And European countries are willing to pay these militias in order to stop uh, the migrant flow, but then it just shifts to other militias that are uh, not paid off. Everybody starts raising their price. So it's, it's, uh, it's a business. And it's a very dirty business. People are the victims of it, um, but but uh, I still have some hope because uh, simply because uh, people do still accept that there is a political process, uh, and people haven't it, the, the violence hasn't had, uh, reached the level and the generality throughout the territory that people have started
1: leaving in great numbers. So we need to work from that basis. Colin, it seems to me that Libya, for some reason, has remained off the radar screen of most Americans. And it wasn't a place where the pottery barn scenario held. It wasn't you break it, you bought it. The U.S. famously led from behind, but it was clearly a powerful player in toppling the Gaddafi regime. You spent time in the Obama administration. Maybe you can give us a little insight as to why the problems inherent to Libya were so vexing for the White House. Sure. Uh, well, look, I
3: think initially, um, separate and apart from the leading from behind uh, comment, the... Who said Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't in the White House at the time. Uh, no, seriously, I don't know. Um, I guess even if I was, I couldn't tell you. Um, look, I think there was an expectation. Uh, President Obama uh, has been explicit about this in some of the interviews that he gave toward the end of his tenure, that, that at least he had the expectation that the Europeans were going to take more of a lead in the aftermath, uh, in, and that there was also some fundamental constraints about how much the Libyans actually wanted the international community on the ground. So I think, uh, you know, from the very beginning, Um, The Obama administration was willing to provide a lot of critical enablers and military support for initially the civilian protection mission, which morphed, as they sometimes do, into uh, essentially a regime change mission, that the hope was that the post-war situation would largely be handled by those European stakeholders with the most um, uh, track record and experience on the ground, the UK, the French. The Italians uh, and others, and uh, the international community didn't show up in the way that I think, meaning the Obama uh, administration hoped. And then also, like I said, there was there was not a lot of appetite for a large presence, especially a militarized presence, by the international community among the Libyans in the immediate aftermath. I will say that at least in my time in the White House, which was really the last two and a half years of the administration, Libya was seen as the dog that wasn't yet barking on the Islamic State front, but was about to. That is, there was a recognition that um, it was the third most lethal branch of the Islamic State, and that as uh, ISIS was being squeezed in Iraq and Syria, uh, that there was a real possibility that uh, they would relocate uh, to Libya. And we actually saw in the kind of 2015, 2016 context – some reverse flow. Traditionally, uh, uh, Libya has been a source of foreign fighters flowing to uh, the Levant uh, and to Iraq. We started to see a reverse flow uh, back into Libya. We started to see ISIS deploy some of their more experienced uh, leadership and commanders into Libya. Uh, we started to worry about the possibility that they would use safe havens in places like Sirte, uh to uh, essentially engage in external plotting against the United States homeland and against Europe. And so shortly after the stand-up of the government of national accord, uh, we worked through Prime Minister Siraj and through uh, Misratan militias essentially in support of this government of national accord uh, to pretty aggressively go after ISIS's presence in CERT um, and do them a lot of damage. Um, But I I do think it, it speaks to this issue that from the American perspective, we have largely seen Libya in the post qaddafi era through a counterterrorism lens, and it's always seemed to be kind of second, third, fourth in line. Uh, but I think that's going to change, because uh, you have um, the Islamic State essentially on the ropes uh, in Iraq. Uh, the only place they're left in Iraq is, is basically along the border in al-Qaim. Uh, in, in Syria, they're being squeezed in Raqqa, and uh, the last stand in Syria is going to be in the middle Euphrates River Valley around Deir Zor uh, and Abu Kamal and some and some other places. But they're, the days of the territorial caliphate in Iraq and Syria are, are numbered. And so I think you will likely see more of an emphasis uh, uh, on Libya I would caution the Trump administration, though, to take a purely CT lens towards this problem because it's not – I think one of the things that our conversation today surfaced is that um, not only is securitizing the issue dangerous because there's a broader set of economic and political considerations, but actually the expediency of seeing Libya through the lens of counterterrorism can create the temptation for certain actors to partner with actors on the ground inside of Libya that they perceive as short-term – Uh, in the short term useful against uh, a common enemy, so a kind of enemy of my enemy is my friend logic, when when it's possible that some of these militia can be spoilers in the overall equation. So I think one of the things that was surfaced through our conversation today is just how important it is that all forms of assistance that the international community provide be channeled through the legitimate authorities of the GNA, of the Government of National Accord. Um, And the the, the eight hundred pound gorilla in this equation is really what you're going to do with General Haftar and the Lebanese, uh I mean, sorry, the, Lib- uh, the the Libyan National Army, which is neither a national uh, thing nor really an army. Uh, it's not. It's not. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> It's not national in the sense that it's it's largely an eastern uh, a coalition of, of Libyan forces, and it's not an, an integrated army in the sense that it's a kind of hodgepodge of militias under the control of Haftar. It is true that uh, it is the most powerful military entity on the ground in Libya. It's also the case they're not powerful enough to take over the whole country, and they have not bought into the government of national accord. And so I think there has been some been a temptation over the last several years, especially among some regional uh, uh, partners who view the, the Islamist terrorist challenge very broadly uh, to see Haftar as a useful, expedient ally in that equation because he's gone after Islamists kind of systematically, even if acting through him works to the detriment of the, gov- of the government of national accord. So I, I, I think that there's – I hope uh, that the international community now understands that whatever they do on the counterterrorism or uh, political or development front really needs to be channeled th- to the degree possible through uh, the institutions that we're trying to build at the, at the core of the new Libya.
1: You know, part of this is that Libya was an invented state held together by Gaddafi with tribal regimes, vast expanses of wasteland and desert, Tuaregs and migratory peoples, many tribes. And now there's this intense effort to build an inclusive governance structure. Mohammed, how are some of the outside political actors from the Middle East and other places helping to make sure that everyone has a say who needs a say without alienating groups so that they take up arms and break the state again?
0: I mean, look, for the UAE, we've been advocating this for years now, that there is no military solution in Libya, that the only solution has to be a political solution. And with all the difficulties in taking the LPA, the Libyan political agreement, the Skhirat agreement, uh, and implementing it, and nevertheless, it's the only tool that we've got. It's the only option that we've got. So we have been advocating for and uh, trying to facilitate Libyan-Libyan dialogue. And you know, this, this political solution can only be reached by the Libyans. They do have to include uh, those that feel that that the agreement hasn't met their needs. They do have to get everybody on board. And what the uh, UN envoy with the new action plan that he's put forward in, in September need to do is get all of these parties to uh, agree on a way forward on the on the LPA. We don't see any other alternative. So we're uh, throwing our full support behind the the UN envoy.
1: Yos, do you, do things have to get worse before they get better? There are so many rival groups and camps uh, that hold territory that have militias uh, and may not ex- uh, you know agree to this reconciliation plan. Is there enough leverage for you and Envoy Ghassan Salameh to bring parties together in a way that can be constructive and find a lasting solution?
2: Well, there's no question that the challenge will be huge for Hassan Salama as he has taken on this uh, position and this role. The, um, he is going to, to bring to, to try to, to amend the uh, I mean political, political agreement and to, to take care of some of the flaws that were there originally. The, the original agreement, while providing a basis, was also rushed and left out uh, because of that uh, some key actors, as I mentioned. And I think his objective is going to be to, to restart the talks in a way that is more inclusive and to try to bring so more, more people around the table, first through meetings focused specifically on recasting the Presidential Council, which now has nine members, but it may go down to three members or something like that. Uh, we'll have to see. And and then to create some of the other key institutions uh, to govern and then to have the, the Parliament, the, the legal Parliament, to endorse that. Um, because that happened sort of two years ago but not the leader of the parliament did not agree but the majority of parliament did but the leader of the parliament of course was <laughs> powerful and therefore a spoiler and then to organize a national convention which is really a big tent exercise even though we haven't really heard the detail of it yet but that would that would focus on some of the key questions that cannot uh, solve through elections or, or even in a constitutional committee but have to be done by a larger group and they include the issue of uh, de- decentralization, resources, because of course Libya is heavily de- dependent on oil exports the minorities, and especially, and it's the most difficult one is, is how, how is the military organized? Can you bring all the militias together under a single umbrella, under a single command structure that is then under civilian control? Is it possible? The challenge is extremely difficult, but there is no alternative, because the alternative is that the situation can get worse. It can come to open fighting uh, and then when that happens I think uh, you will see not only migrant flows through Libya but also refugee flows and you'll see also an increase in, in, in violence that will spread beyond the borders
1: of Libya and affect the surrounding states. Colin, is there any precedent that you can think of for a political solution of this magnitude? I can't off the top of my head think of a state that's so fractured that has been able at least in the modern period to be put back together.
3: One does not immediately come to mind, and it's fractured in all sorts of ways. There's a regional fracture, east, west, and south, uh, but even that in some ways puts on top, you know, creates an illusion of certainty or uh, in, in, that there are groups that are aligned with eastern tribes that, are, that reside in the west uh, there are in, or in the south and, and, and vice versa. Uh, you also have uh, entities like Misrata that are essentially city-states. Um, you have uh, competing government centers in Tripoli versus Tobruk. Uh, and so you just have a lot of different actors. And as, as you pointed out, as flawed as the political agreement and the political track is under the LPA, the Libyan political agreement, and, and obviously the UN is trying to, is trying to patch that up, um, it's way ahead of the security track. Uh, and there are so many actors that have to be integrated and reconciled or isolated and and demobilized and it's not exactly clear how that's going to happen and I made reference to Haftar earlier you know one of the big question, maybe the $64,000 question in this is, who's going to be the supreme commander of whatever re, you know constituted national army is going to be, and what role does Haftar play uh, in that? Uh, it, it, does it, is it is it a selection uh, of commanders that is done completely internally, uh, just that you stand up a military and then they select their own? Or should there be civilian con- uh, oversight and control over how military commanders are approved of and, and released uh, from their duty if necessary? Uh, that's clearly the preference, I think, of the vast majority of the international community but um, it runs up against the interests of some of the more powerful actors on the ground. And that's just inside Libya. You then layer on top of that the fact that the international community, while united in the sense of, of being concerned about Libya and the spillover consequences of Libya for the region, for the counterterrorism problem, for the migration issue, has no, has no baseline agreement about which actors to back. Uh, and so because you have competing patrons... For the different sides, it's especially hard because it's difficult to marshal international consensus to put leverage on all on all of the actors. I do think that while we should caution, you know, the cautionary note I made earlier about over-securitizing the Libya situation or seeing it just through a counterterrorism lens, it is one of the few issues where you might be able to get a degree of consensus. And if you can get the Americans and the Russians and the French and the Italians and the Egyptians and the Emiratis and others to understand that the common concerns they have about terrorism can only be reconciled by all of them putting pressure on the various actors that they have the most influence with on the ground to actually make real progress on the security track. And by that I mean not just getting guys with guns to go after other guys with guns, but actually to integrate uh, and to be professionalized and if necessary demobilized and having the hierarchy of of command and control rationalized and under uh, uh, the, the GNA, the Government of National Accord. If you can get agreement on that basic issue, then maybe you can get enough pressure on the militias on the ground. But I don't know that there's, I mean, the sheer complexity of the and numbers of actors combined with how many foreign parties are relevant with conflicting interests is, if not a unique challenge historically, is among uh, the more uh, unique ones.
1: Well, I don't want to leave listeners on too much of a depressing note, because part of the reason that we do Peace Game is to bring people together to explore constructive solutions for these kinds of problems. Muhammad, um you seem to have a certain sense of hope that there can be a solution here
0: yeah I mean look um there's there's no doubt that while Libya is very very complex, the solution seems to us like it 's still within reach. That being said, we always feel like we come close in Libya and that solution is just you know uh, out of uh, just out of our reach. We are deeply concerned by the terrorist threat and the safe haven that uh, they're finding there and the organized crime businesses that fuel and support the the uh, migration challenge. We do feel that while the political process needs to be moved forward and uh, supported and facilitated by the UN envoy and in the international community, and that all uh, actors who do have any influence in Libya should use that influence to try to get these actors to uh, come to a, uh, a political agreement, the counterterrorism threat cannot wait for it. So we feel that the international community uh, needs to work with the Libyan people even while the political solution is out of reach and in parallel supporting the Libyan gna and the Lna the presidency council in confronting this uh, this this threat because it will and and has and will continue to make the political solution even harder to to attain and the threat will continue to grow uh, while that political solution remains out of reach so We're thinking of ways with our partners on how we can support the Libyans in the meantime to confront the extremists.
2: Well I just want to come in on that if that's okay uh, because what, what, what uh, Mohammed, uh, Ambassador Abu Shahab said is, is very important that um, you, you have a political process that is going to have to take time. If it's rushed again it will not lead to greater stability but but further breakdown and despair um, but you also have uh, immediate security threats um, you can have a, a bomb attack in, in some European city um, that originates in Libya or is seen to originate in Libya. The Manchester bomber the Manche- you uh, and you had and that that usually, because of the, the need to appease uh, pu- uh, local publics, uh, leads to, a, to, a, to an immediate response that can be unilater- unilateral. I think the UN. Uh, uh, envoy, in this case Hassan Salame, faces the, the critical task, as, as did his predecessors, to, to to hold on to a political process that is not undermined by unilateral actions by states or non-state actors that are responding to security threats. But that everything uh, still is coordinated with him uh, and with the UN, so that uh, he, he can uh, combine both the short-term requirements with the longer term ones so that one doesn't undermine the other i think that that is that is the the, the real challenge that the un mediator f- faces and it's uh, again not not an easy one but if what we have seen often in peace processes including in libya is that unilateral steps uh, if there's no strong um, uh, uh, coordination from the U.N. coming in, with the support of the international community, then you end up with unilateral uh, act, uh, steps taken. And we've
1: seen that the European
2: states, member states of the EU, are working directly across purposes in Libya.
1: Well, speaking of unilateral moves, I want to take a little jump and take 10 minutes at the end of the podcast to discuss what seems to be an inevitability. And that's the Trump's administration's decertification of the Iran deal. We're here in Brussels today, and I can't imagine European governments are particularly thrilled about this move. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that the White House is going to throw out all parts of the Iran deal, uh, but it does set us down a course uh, that looks to be in potential conflict or at least an attempt to gain additional leverage over Iran. So I want to get some thoughts on what this means for the deal itself, how the White House is going to play this, and how some of the other governments will act.
3: So, uh, let me start, maybe. I think one thing for the listeners to understand is that the deal qua deal is working. Uh, That is, that the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was meant to put significant and verifiable constraints... On Iran's nuclear program, in particular to make it difficult for them to produce the explosive fissile material you would need for a nuclear weapon, either through weapons-grade uranium or weapons-grade plutonium. The deal has all sorts of stringent uh, uh, constraints on Iran's program in that scheme. And the International Atomic Energy Agency, who's the UN watchdog in charge of of verifying compliance with the deal, has reported eight times that Iran continues to comply with the deal. And Trump's own cabinet— Tillerson, uh, uh, Mattis, McMaster, uh, Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, have all concluded that, that uh, agree that Iran is in technical compliance with, with the deal. Um, but Trump hates the deal. Uh, And there's this law that was passed in the summer of 2015 by Congress called INARA, which stands for the Iran Nuclear Agreement Review Act. And it was passed uh, on a bipartisan basis as a way to review uh, the deal that it was about to be finalized to give Congress a voice. And what the deal – what the legislation calls for is that every single – every 90 days – after the deal. The president has to certify a number of things, a principle among them is that Iran continues to comply with the deal, but also that the deal and especially continuing to lift sanctions under the deal continues to be in the U.S. national security interest. So what Trump is coming at, I think the, the way they're going to try to split the baby on this is they, they may argue that Iran is violating the spirit of the deal, whatever that is, because Iran continues to be a troublemaker in the region. But Trump is likely to say, when he gives uh, the speech in, in, a, in a couple days, uh, that the deal simply isn't in America's interest. Uh, and what that does then is trigger a 60-day review process inside the Congress to consider whether to snap back or reimpose all the nuclear-related sanctions that were suspended under the agreement. Why is Trump doing this? Um, partly because he hates the deal. Uh, partly, though, I think, is that, that uh, his cabinet has tried to give him an option where he can express his hatred of the deal, but also try to generate international leverage to get the Europeans, the other members of the so-called P5 plus 1, the permanent five members of the Security Council plus Germany, and Iran back to the table to discuss some of the issues that weren't covered by the deal, Uh, to include Iran's support for militancy and terrorism, its ballistic missile program, and to also lengthen Uh, the terms of the deal so that some of the constraints on Iran's nuclear program don't expire at years 10 or year 15. And they believe that essentially decertifying puts the world on notice that the deal is tenuous and that the Congress at any moment or the president could blow it up and then try to use that leverage to renegotiate the terms of the agreement. There are a couple of risks uh, involved in this. The administration is signaling that they're going to decertify it, but they don't actually want Congress to reimpose all the sanctions and put the United States in material breach of the deal. The problem is the Trump administration has demonstrated no ability to actually control what Congress does. And so once they put this in Congress's lap, the only thing that needs 50 votes is the reimposition of sanctions. Everything else that you might do on Iran requires 60 votes. So the easiest thing for Congress to do is to reimpose sanctions and violate the deal. And so they could create a sorcerer's apprentice effect whereby they unleash a set of forces they don't control. Number two, even if that doesn't happen, Congress, to try to uh, signal that they want a better deal, whatever that is, Could pass legislation that, in essence, is viewed by the rest of the world as renegotiating the terms of the deal unilaterally. And you made the segue into this segment on unilateralism. And there, the real danger is we could increasingly be seen as in, uh, at the very least, implementing the deal in bad faith and potentially being in material breach ourselves. And if the Trump administration is right that we should be doing more to isolate Iran in the region and internationally, and I agree with that, we should be doing more. The worst thing you can do is set in motion a set of unilateral actions that instead isolate the United States from our closest partners in Europe uh, and make, and allow and basically do the impossible, which is allow Iran to play the victim uh, in this equation. So if you want to pressure Iran outside the nuclear domain, I'm all for it. You want to isolate Iran, I'm all for it. Uh, but you're not going to do it by decertifying the Iran deal.
0: I'll just come from the UAE perspective. I mean, we were not part of the discussions on the nuclear deal, but we were the first country to congratulate Iran on signing the deal. And we understand that perhaps this was the best deal that was possible uh, at the time. But regardless of what happens with this deal, we of course think it's important to prevent Iran from obtaining a nuclear weapon. But to be frank, our problems with Iran are, you know, that is one element of the many issues that we have on Iran, and it's not on the top of our list. On the top of our list are its destabilizing activities within our region. There are activities in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and and, and many other places. So, And one thing that we've seen as a, a result of the deal, I mean, our hopes... From partners and hopes that we were skeptical about, but we would have been happy to have been proven wrong, was that by reaching the deal, that more wind uh, would be in the sails of the relative moderates in, in, in Iran, and they would be able to influence these other files. Uh, In fact, what we've seen since uh, the signing of the deal is that those forces have just been emboldened and they've wreaked even more havoc in our region. Now, we're not saying that there uh, shouldn't be a deal, but what we're saying is that the preservation of the deal uh, should not allow for Iran to have a free pass and to continue on this much more problematic behavior. And if there's a way to do both, we think that would be the best outcome, do both as in preserve a deal that... uh, doesn't allow Iran to obtain a nuclear weapon, but uh, also forces it to change its behavior.
1: Yost, by the end of the Obama administration, there wasn't a lot of love in the Middle East for that White House. Trump has been more favorably received, and particularly his strength when it comes to the Iran deal. But that also seems to go counter to a lot of European governments. uh, And this might drive an even further wedge after the revocation of the Paris climate deal and other positions taken by the Trump administration. How do you see this playing out?
2: You know, this is very clear. I mean, the, the Trump administration is more closely aligned to those states that opposed the JCPOA from the from the beginning of negotiations, which were Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, and other Gulf states, because they saw that for them it was always a choice: do you want uh, a, a nuclear-powered uh, Iran that can use its nuclear power to 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 bully uh, other states states in the region like them, them, or do you want to have a a denuclearized Iran, but that is empowered through a deal with the West. And that is in the end what has happened, of course, in their view. There is a, now a nuclear deal where the, the Iran's regional conduct was firewalled off in order to reach that deal successfully. Um, but now they see that Iran is unleashed. In the region, because now Europe wants to do business with it, the Russians, everybody else, even American companies, Boeing, others, wanting to, are doing business with with Iran. So, uh, from 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 their perspective, the Israel, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and others, um, Iran now can do whatever it wants in the region because it feels that for the Trump administration now to get rid of that deal somehow. Um, uh, it will directly materially affect their interests in bringing Iran back into the international community and do business with it. So so this is the, the real problem. The, the negotiations were, were between the P5 plus one on the one hand and Iran on the other but it was really always between the United States and Iran. Uh, that's where the real disagreement was ever since the Islamic Revolution. Um, and now um, uh, the, the problem is, is that the deal is a multilateral deal. If one party like the United States or Iran, for that matter, pulls out, um, you're going to have a, a major crisis because other partners to the parties to the deal are going to balk. Now, the the real danger is this. The, um, in this kind of situation where the Trump administration says the deal uh, is politically, uh, maybe, maybe Iran is not a material breach, but at the same time, uh, Iran is, is undermining it by its actions in the uh, in the region, you can get to a situation where uh, what we call black swans, or where one of the parties uh, undertakes some military action, either directly or by proxy, and then incurs retaliation. And before you know it, you're in an escalatory cycle. I think on the Obama administration, every attempt was made to prevent that. And when there was an incident, for example, in the Gulf to, to, to play it down and to immediately talk with the Iranians because there were channels. Now the channels are not there and the will is not there and the, and the extreme in both Iran and the United States are set to escalate whatever incident takes place, whether it be in the Gulf or in Yemen or in Iraq or in Syria or anywhere else where they face off.
3: Yeah, so I think a couple of things first the deal itself was never meant to address Iran's other behavior. It was meant to get rid of the nuclear challenge uh, for an extended period of time, perhaps in the hopes that Iran would moderate its behavior, but I sat in the Oval Office with uh, President Obama multiple times where, he, where uh, he made clear that in this case hope was not a plan and that the deal had to make sense even if Iran didn't change its stripes at all, even if Iran continued to be uh, the destabilizing actor uh, uh, that they were. And the reason that we prioritized the national. The, the, the nuclear issue is that i mean look I, I get that that the that iran's aspirations for regional hegemony spook other countries in the gulf uh, they threaten us interests i think we should be worried about them they concern israel but i think we have to put ourselves back into what the debate was like in washington between in 2009 to 2015 when everybody was saying that the most important issue was the nuclear issue that iran having a nuclear weapon was an existential threat to israel an existential threat to the united states that is de- we
1: had a countdown clock on the website for yeah. Yes. Jets in the air.
3: Yes. Every day. I worked at the Pentagon for the first three years of the Obama administration. We spent as much time uh, wondering about whether the Israelis were going to launch a war against Iran that was going to drag the United States in, or we would have to start a war to prevent them from acquiring a nuclear weapon. But my two biggest jobs at the Pentagon were ending the Iraq war and preparing for the Iran war. And it was solely because of the, uh, because of the, of the nuclear issue. There were also all sorts of talk about that if Iran crossed the nuclear threshold, that countries in the Gulf would follow suit, that the Saudis would develop their own nuclear weapons or acquire one from Pakistan, or that the Emirates would be uh, compelled uh, to uh, pull out of the one 2, 3 agreement and militarize their nuclear program. I'm not saying any of this would have happened, but let's remember what the conversation was like in 2009 to, 2000, uh, to 2015 when the deal was struck, where the nuclear issue or wars surrounding the nuclear program were the number one and number two uh, concerns that people had. That said, Iran continues to be a bad actor in the region. I, I reject the notion that the deal has empowered them um, all that materially. They were bad actors before the negotiations. They were bad actors under sanctions. They were bad, and they're bad actors now. The Trump administration's own intelligence uh, community prof- uh, professionals have testified to Congress that very little of the money from the deal has actually gone to the military. And the reality is this stuff is cheap. Iran only spends about $15 billion on its military. Saudi Arabia spends eight times that much. The Emirates spend probably twice as much uh, as that. The the Israelis spend two and a half times as much. It's not about money. It's that the region is chaotic, and there are places like Lebanon and Syria and Yemen and Iraq where the Iranians uh, have been good at exploiting chaos. That's not about money. And it's not about this Iran deal. So I would say, if you're worried about Iran's destabilizing behavior, let's focus on that. That means more security and intelligence cooperation with our partners in the Emirates, uh, the Israelis, the Saudis, uh, and others. It means more diplomacy, actually, to try to end conflicts in Yemen and Syria, the, the post-ISIS aftermath in Iraq, uh, dealing with the controversies in places like Bahrain, uh, to, to shrink the opportunities that Iran has. It means putting more sanctions, as long as those sanctions uh, don't reimpose the sanctions suspended under the nuclear deal we were always clear with the iranians during negotiations if you continue to test ballistic missiles if you continue to uh, export conventional arms and support terrorism we can continue to sanction you and and we should the last point i will make if the goal is to put more pressure on iran risking blowing up the deal is the worst way of going about uh, doing it There are those proponents of blowing up the deal, you know, folks like Senator Cotton or people outside like the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, uh, Bibi Netanyahu uh, and others who basically say, no, we can reimpose all the sanctions. The United States is the biggest market in the world. We can dare every company and bank in the world. You have a choice. You can either do business with America or do business with Iran. The problem is our secondary sanctions, as potent as they are, are only as good as the underlying political consensus that underwrites them. And, there, and I'll give you one example. In the 1990s, we also had secondary sanctions on investments in Iran's energy sector, and the EU ignored them. In fact, they told their companies not to comply with them. And they dared the Clinton administration to uh, to start a trade war with them and claimed that they would retaliate and take us to the WTO, uh, et cetera. And the Europeans are saying the same things today. And the reason I bring that up is— Even if you get, even if you reimpose all the secondary sanctions, you are never going to get back to where we were before 2015 because compliance will be uneven. The Chinese are going to continue to buy oil. So are the Indians, so are the Turks, so are the South Koreans, so are the Japanese. The EU is going to protect their companies. And you can't get 150% of this deal with less than 100% of the leverage we had before the deal. It's just, it just, it makes zero sense. Instead, if you're worried about legitimizing Iran, the best way to legitimize Iran is to make the United States look like it's acting in bad faith, makes us look like the jerks, uh, the skunk at the, at the garden party, and allow the Iranians to play the victim. That is the pathway uh, for Iran's legitimat- legitimation, which is why, frankly, I think the Iranians are just sitting back and watching the Trump administration have an own goal here of, of creating divisions in the international community, because the Iranians know the only thing that puts pressure on them is when the international community is united.
1: Yeah, Rouhani has said almost exactly that. If the Trump administration dumps the Iran deal, the international eyes are going to be on Trump uh, for doing so. And then Iran will figure out how to play it. Um, But it strikes me that this is one place where a lot of goodwill and a lot of international cooperation is going to be very important, whether it is negotiating a new deal or increasing leverage on Iran to come to some sort of agreement here.
0: No, look, I think the only thing that brought Iran to the table was pressure. Um, it was pressure from sanctions and the UAE and many others, but the UAE played an important role in tightening up those sanctions and making them hurt. It came at a huge cost to the normal trade that we have with, the, with Iran, and we we're you know, more than willing to take that cost to get that pressure to compel them to come to the negotiating table. We, we basically need to have the same kind of pressure on other aspects. And I agree with Colin that it is possible to, uh, whether it's through sanctions, whether it's through pushing back on some of the places that they've been having greater influence uncontested, but we need to take actions that does push back on In fact, the other part of Iran that we're not at the negotiating table, it is the Revolutionary Guard that are responsible for the files that uh, bring us a great deal of concern. And it's not within, at least now, the uh, space of uh, President uh, Rouhani or Minister Zarif. So we are looking and exploring ways uh, now of what can we do to compel Iran to change its behavior? What kind of pressure can we bring to bear uh, on Iran that would allow it to or perhaps oblige it uh, to change its destructive behavior in our region?
1: Well, I don't think those are questions we're going to be able to answer today, but they're right on point. Thank you again to my guests, Mohammed Abou-Shahab, the UAE ambassador to Belgium and the EU, Joost Tilterman of the International Crisis Group, and Colin Kahl from Georgetown's Walsh School of Foreign Service. And listeners, we'll see you again soon. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Ben Pauker, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP, and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us.